what would you say would be the best way for us to approach reading the Gospels, either with our family or by ourselves in the future? My graduate advisor was challenged in one of my courses by a student who questioned that professor's faith. And in his response to this question, the student who questioned his faith, he, he looked at him in the eyes and he said, without a doubt, the Jesus of history existed. And he said, you want to haggle over the Jesus of faith, but we need to first understand who the Jesus of history is. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. I'm here today with Dr. Tom Wavent, who is the director of the BYU Religious Studies Center. But he wears several hats. He teaches here at BYU. He works in the publishing division. And then in his spare time, he's a researcher. Dr. Wavent, can you tell us some of the things you do as a researcher? Because sometimes I call out the nice care that you're in Pompeii or you're in England. Recently, you came back from Barcelona. Can you tell us about that? Thanks, Laura, for having me. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, a little bit about me. I um, am trained as a as a papyrologist, which means I really deal with papyri relating to the rise of Christianity. And I typically, why I'm all over the world, is is accessing collections of papyri, oftentimes unpublished, and trying to go through those and find evidence of Christianity, new documents that we don't know about, sometimes new literary texts, but a lot of times it's letters and and wills and things where a Christian is present. That's my area of interest. That's what, what I love to do. And then also, as you mentioned, I work here at the Religious Studies Center. So you're kind of on the cutting edge of Christian document research, would you say? Yeah, in a way, yeah. We, uh, a colleague and I uh, often do kind of similar things, and we're, we do discover new things. Uh, in the last two years, I discovered the first amulet, Christian amulet, that has Colossians on it. Previously, we, there were no known amulets that had Colossians, and, and that's, uh, that's a little kind of keepsake you wear around your neck that you read a passage from the Bible every day to uh, ward off spirits, to give you good health. And in this case, it was to remind the person of baptism. So it, they would look at that, and it had even the sewing marks in it. So that that's fun. Yeah, we do find things, and, and that's exciting. A lot of times we add incrementally to what we know, but sometimes there are pretty big discoveries to be made. Well, that's great. So this year, beginning in with the school year, if you have a seminary-age student, they will be studying the New Testament and if you're like I am, I like to read along with my son and help them get maybe insights they wouldn't get if they were breezing through it as they tend to breeze through it. So I approached Dr. Waymont, and he told me he wanted to talk about a more modern approach to studying at least the Gospels. So I'm going to start with how I learned to read the Gospels at BYU 30 years ago. I had a teacher who wanted to harmonize the Gospels, and he actually made his own textbook where they had side-by-side side the passages that would line up, and it actually was kind of hard to comprehend what was going on because we would be reading one verse or one topic, and then we'd read, okay, this is what Mark says about it, this is what Matthew says about it, this is what Luke says about it, and there was 
it was harmonization that was totally disharmonized. Would you call that a modern approach to reading the New Testament? Well, modern in the sense of two or three hundred years ago. Uh, that was kind of modern then. I, th I think the modern reader, modern approach to the Bible should understand one of the reasons we were doing that uh, 30 years ago and hundreds of years ago is uh, in the early 19th century, the Bible is in, in a sense under assault by people who are questioning the integrity of the Bible. And they're asking questions about miracles. Remember, this is scientific revolution, age of understanding. And they're starting to say, well, miracles aren't provable entities. And so should we say about these sources, the miracles are in a sense untrue. And then they started to question other parts of the story. And one of the responses to that is to harmonize the Bible and to create a kind of, if you will, defensible narrative. This is Jesus. And for this story, we have three evidences on it, which in a sense is three witnesses proving that it happened. And, and it's a counter to this if you will, rise, rise of, of age of understanding. Well, the problem is that got us so far, right? That, that worked then, that answered the question for some, and for others it didn't. But we held on to that. We, we held on to this idea that, that the, Bibles are, the Bible is under assault, particularly the New Testament stories of Jesus. And, and we've focused on that harmonized view. And if, in my sense, in my understanding, I would really want my son or daughter, if they were in seminary right now, to, to look at the stories and say, well, tell me about Mark and, and tell me about Luke. And one of the reasons I, I think this is important, and I think analogy that will work for Latter-day Saints, we're all going to go to conference or listen to conference here in, Oct in October, and we're going to listen to it in April. And we, in a sense, would think it was probably um, disruptive to the purpose of conference if we said, now that you've heard the morning session, just give me one paragraph on what they all meant. And what you lost is you lost Elder Holland's voice, and you lost Elder Uchtdorf's voice, and you lost all of these different voices who have interests. Well, when you, if you, sorry for the modern term, if you mash up the Gospels, you just got rid of individuality, and these were men and women who had their own ideas. And so that's what I would want to first of all recover. So going back to the Gospels, I think we're going to separate John out in this discussion because he's a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptics, which means something like we saw it together or we saw it in the same way. And then John obviously is, is quite different. Okay, so I want to go back to kind of how we got here. I purchased just about a year ago a book that took that whole harmonization thought at, to the max and put it together in a book. So instead of having three rows of the different scriptures telling the same story, it mashed it together, like you said. And so as I read it, I thought, oh, wow, he was standing on the hill while this was happening. I never would have realized that if I didn't know these two accounts worked in harmony. So I think there's a confusion with what these separate Gospels are. Are they all looking at one source and saying, okay, this is an aspect that I would like to present. This is my thesis for Jesus. Or do you feel like they had parts of a source that they put together? I don't think people really quite understand what we have with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
What is your yeah. perspective on that? It's hard for the modern reader to think of in terms of a world without recording devices and a, a world without your ability to even write down in a shorthand what someone's saying. And so for us, uh, we, we would think in terms of accuracy. I notice modern art sometimes shows the apostles speaking and there'll be someone there writing it down. And I think that's our need to say this was done accurately. And, and the modern world just simply doesn't work that way. They have no problem of saying, I was at this speech, I heard Thucydides uh, that day or, or whoever, you know, Pericles' funeral oration, and I'm giving you the intent. I'm doing my very best to convey what I felt, saw, and heard. And we would view that as somewhat inaccurate, but the Gospels originate in a world where people heard the sayings of Jesus, and they they do their very best to come home a day, a week, and sometimes years later and say, this was the intent of that day, that speech on the mount, or that was what Jesus really was saying. And, and that's why there's differences in the gospel. Matthew takes this idea of what he said, and he says, let me, let me tell you what I think it meant. And Luke is telling you, well, I think it's a little bit different that way. Now, I want to talk about the evangelists who wrote these Gospels. Do we know exactly who they were? Uh, not at all. Um, the Gospels absolutely are formally anonymous. Um, and when I mentioned earlier, I do papyrology. Um, when we take our modern Bible, the one that we use, for example, in a, in a modern church meeting, that's a translation of manuscripts that existed in the 8th and 9th century and later. So if we keep pushing back and we get to the earliest manuscripts, the first ones that bear names um, happen in the in the third century, maybe as early as somewhat in the late second century. So between Jesus's death and the first, if you will, book that has Matthew written on it, we're talking 200 plus years. So in that 200 years, we have manuscripts. We don't know if they had any names or whatnot associated with them. And, and so largely, I would encourage a modern reader to not fixate on the idea that Matthew wrote Matthew or Mark wrote Mark. That's probably largely irrelevant, and it may be a little bit jolting for the modern reader to think, wow, I've always thought the Apostle Matthew wrote it. But when we dive in to the Apostle Matthew, if you will, into the Gospel of Matthew, it's pretty clear that the author there didn't necessarily follow Jesus his whole life. He looks like he's someone who's come into the story. He does look like a disciple. Whether that's Matthew or not, it's a little hard to tell as a historian, but what's really interesting about Matthew is he relies for the majority of his source on Mark, who's not an, uh, an eyewitness. So it's pretty clear that I, I would say, as a historian, it's very difficult for me to defend the idea that Matthew wrote Matthew. A believer wrote Matthew, a follower of Jesus wrote Matthew, but whether it was Matthew or somebody else, I can't tell any longer. So basically, these stories of Jesus, do you believe, were passed down by oral tradition after the life of Christ and then picked up by an unknown author who was a believer in Christ and written down. His name may or may not have been Matthew, irrelevant, but he wanted to present a certain aspect of Christ's life. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the interesting thing. So Mark, I think we have some good ideas about Mark, and Mark seems to be the origin of the beginning point of anybody wanting to tell a whole life of Jesus. And Mark is clearly 
unaware of the events in order, but he knows a lot about Jesus. And the early church circulated a story that seems to hold out, hold water. There is really no good reason to question it, is that he followed Peter around and translated for Peter into Greek, possibly Latin. It's unclear which way, but I would say probably Greek. And as he did that, he gained a kind of appreciation for here is the life of Jesus. And when Mark finally sets about telling it, it's probably triggered by an event like Peter's demise, possibly Peter's arrest, or some event that says, I need to write this. And that moment of writing kind of fixes the story. It transitions from the oral day when they were giving these speeches, when they were teaching the gospel in Rome, in North Africa, wherever it might be, Greece. And and Mark says, we need to kind of solidify the story. But Mark, Mark's pretty aware that if you, if you read Mark in Greek, he's pretty aware that he doesn't know all the reasons why, like Jesus went from Galilee to Jerusalem. He doesn't understand the causal. So he uses the word immediately. I think it's 42 times. He uses it four or five times more than any other gospel. And all his main stories are connected by he did this and then he immediately did that. And it's kind of a weird read in a sense, like Jesus is running around doing all these things. And and Matthew comes back and whatever Matthew, whoever he is, he's like, no, you got the story in order. It's a mess. We got to fix the order. And he gets rid of all these immediately. And he starts to add causal connections. Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Passover. And Luke will do the same thing to Mark. So that's our kind of beginning of the story. To answer the other part, do I think it's oral tradition going forward? Um, absolutely. I think there are these sayings of Jesus that, if if you will, are gathered, that people know them. Paul knows them. Paul even quotes one in Acts that's not recorded in the Gospels. He says it's better to give than to receive, which none of the evangelists picked that one up. Well, that's great. So as we're studying the New Testament, I know sometimes if you're looking for a specific thing, it enhances your understanding. What should we look for? So one of the things reading the Bible and trying to find meaning in it, um, I worry that sometimes with this harmonized approach that it becomes a buffet. So so the life of Jesus is a buffet. And I'll, I'll choose this from Matthew. And I'll say, that fits my theology. And then I'll choose this from Mark as a dessert because that really fits the way I see Jesus. And and as a personal believer, somebody who wants to look at the story and find meaning, direction for my life, I'm very compelled by the issue that there was a, a historical Jesus, that there was a person, a man, uh, if you will, if you move into theology, a person uh, uh, who was God, all of that. But there there was a human individual named Jesus who lived a very compelling life. And in recovering him, I feel that I can inform my own existence. How did he respond to certain events? And to do that, if I, if I kind of mash everything up, I miss the fact that Matthew is telling me, we didn't actually do it quite the way Mark told me he did it. And Luke's saying, you missed an idea in there that he really wanted to reach out to Gentiles in that story too. So that really helps me inform my faith, if you will. So how do we find Jesus in the Gospels? How do we separate the voice of the author from the actual voice of Christ? One of the things that I would kind of encourage us as a big picture thing is 
obviously doctrine and covenants is the exalted Christ speaking. This is, he, he's exalted, he's resurrected, and it's a very different voice, thus saith the Lord. And when we move to the Book of Mormon, it's kind of a, a thousand foot picture looking back at the Old Testament being read as a Christian document. The Book of Mormon does that for me. When I come to Jesus, I think what's helpful for me to, to kind of look at and, and pick out, how can I do this? One, as a reader, I think we're obligated to spend the time to find quality sources that can help us navigate this world. And and saying that, if you will, we it's already been done, I, I don't have to worry about it, I just have to focus on Sunday school. I think the life of Christ merits more attention. I, I think it merits us spending the time. And one of the one of the great ways to do that as as an individual, I would say is start with Mark for for the very reason Mark is the most simple. It can be read in about four hours cover to cover and read it for the very first time, get rid of all the verses, get rid of all the chapters, and realize that very the first Christian communities performed Mark. This is performance text. So you don't we read it today and we read, what do you think about two verse chapter two, verse three? And somebody says, Well, I think that's a footnote to chapter eight, verse five, and, and so forth, and they start comparing it. The ancient person had Gospel of Mark performed. They watched that. They felt it. That's amazing. And just just read that story as as somebody trying to tell you, here it is, and it moved from this to and these are like almost stage cues. He ran from here to here to here to here, and you're you feel something. And then understand that that first person to tell the story, Mark, is telling you, I'm compelled by this narrative. And that, that's your kind of first moment into the historical Jesus. No, Mark doesn't correct anyone, well, at least we don't know of. Mark is not using other sources. Mark's not, Mark's not writing after Matthew. He's the very first person. So maybe he's catching the oral narrative yeah. that has been handed down. Yeah, in a way, that's a good way to kind of look at Mark. And and he probably historically represents Peter, the way Peter's telling the story. Peter's compelled as well. You That comes through in Mark. And when we get to Matthew, it gets more complicated because now Matthew takes roughly 90% of Mark and he reconfigures it. And that's where it's incumbent upon us to be careful to start to look at, and what is really helpful, but it does take time, is to look at some of the favorite stories and look at Mark's version and then look carefully what Matthew does to it. And and you'll and, see. And, and I want to interrupt here. We're not harmonizing. No. We're saying, okay, what's different and perhaps why is he doing it differently? Am yeah. I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So why why is Matthew, for example, the only gospel that says, be therefore perfect? That's a really compelling saying of Jesus, but why didn't Mark tell it? And when you start to look at those stories in context, you'll see things that aren't in Mark that appear in Matthew. You'll see slight corrections. He'll actually drop out certain words. And 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 one of the great ones happens in Luke and, and Mark and Matthew where they tell the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. And the question is, who is in the home and laughs at Jesus when, when Jesus says she's not dead but sleeps? So Luke tells the story and Matthew tell the story, and in Luke, in Mark, it's very possible that the disciples laughed at Jesus. That's We wonder why. Why would somebody tell that? Why wouldn't somebody say, oh, no, the disciples didn't laugh? 
Matthew puts other people inside the home. He points out that the minstrels were in the home, so the laughing can now be them. So now you get a real sense of Matthew, right? Here is somebody who's saying the disciples weren't laughing inappropriately. And now you ask, well, why was Luke okay with that? Why was Mark okay with that kind of thing? And that happens all the time in the stories. Now, my gut reaction is I want to go read what someone said smart to answer that question. Sure. Yeah, sure. which you're saying don't do that. Think about it, right? I, I'd like to I, think. Or, or should we? Okay, I want to find the answer to that question. I can't read the Greek. I don't have all the historical background. So what is the answer to that why question? Yeah, it's a great why. And I think the average reader can do a lot on his or her own. I don't think you always need to have somebody redacting it and telling mm -hmm. you this is what the story means. I think you as a savvy believer can say, here's Luke. And I'm going to compare Luke to Mark today, and I'm going to look at these stories, and you, you'll see things jump out. But at that point, you have a foundation. Say, I want to know the answer to this. Why did Mark say Jesus was mad and Matthew get rid of that? And now you can go somewhere and say, well, I have my own impression. Okay. And my own impression is Mark's telling you this is the real historical Jesus. And Matthew realizes there's a theological problem if Jesus gets mad. Well, and this is what I found is if you start with a basic analysis by someone who has studied this for years, like, for example, Matthew seems to have a real compulsion to not only protect Jesus, but talk about the Jews in the story more than the others do. Absolutely. So if I just have that basic foundation and then I go to Matthew and I look at it with that new view, I'm able to pull things out for myself. Absolutely. In fact, we said we wouldn't talk about John, but one of the, so, the compelling understories of John is that the author of the Gospel of John in the story doesn't call himself John. He calls himself the beloved disciple and the disciple who witnessed things. And he's the gospel who's angry at Judas Iscariot. If you put that together, just as a reader seeing into the story, Here's an author who's deeply offended that one of the 12 was facilitated the death of Jesus. And so he goes back and vilifies Judas throughout the story. He says he's a thief. He's the only one that does that. He's the one who, who has uh, the more intimate arrest scene. And all of those are meant to point out Judas was really a bad guy. You mentioned one about Matthew. Matthew has more negative comments about Jews than the other Gospels. He has Matthew 23, which is basically an unleashing of, onto the, of Jews, if you will. So yeah, that, I think that's a great way to look at it. And maybe where we get the concept that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are such bad characters in this story. Absolutely. And, and if you're thinking of why Gospel authors write, why does Matthew write, uh, one of the reasons is is to place blame for the death of Jesus. And they're living in the, the age, the decades after Jesus dies, and they're trying to figure out, how did this all go wrong? How did somebody kill our Lord? And there are they are looking to blame. The question is, is it Pilate? Is it Judas? Is it the Pharisees and Sadducees? And, and Matthew tends to favor that there was a lot of hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees. So we're going to talk about provenance a little bit. We talked about the synoptics being based on oral tradition, especially Mark. And then after Mark, 
maybe Matthew and Luke took from Mark. You mentioned when we were talking before this interview, you wanted to talk about a new source labeled the Q source. And when you first said that to me, I had never heard of Q. The first thing that popped into my mind was this character from Star Trek. And I talked to my husband, and I said, have you heard of Q? And he said, sure, he's that guy who makes the cool gadgets for 007. <laughs> so I think maybe some of our listeners may yeah. be in the same position that I am. Can you tell us what the Q source is? So Q stands for simply the, the abbreviation source in German, and, and that's because German scholarship kind of dominated naming it. What we, what we see, if we take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we line them up, side by side, as you mentioned earlier, we create these parallel columns. And what we're able to do is we're able to say approximately 90% of the material is the same between the three. So let's, if you will, mathematically, let's factor out Mark. Let's take everything Mark said, take it out of Matthew and Luke, what's left? Well, what's left is a number of sayings, and it depends on which scholar you look at, but we're talking 65 to 85 roughly sayings that Matthew and Luke have that are exactly the same, wording similarities to the point that some of them are so long that they've it's clear they've either looked at each other or they've looked at another source. And the scholarly answer to this question is, is that Matthew and Luke had another source besides Mark called Q. It's hypothetical. It doesn't exist. There are no manuscripts to Q. No ancient author ever mentioned it. But to get Q, we look at Matthew where he is verbatim with Luke, and there is no version of Mark. But what's really compelling is when you look at that as a body of sayings, they are all sayings without historical framework. So all of the Jesus went up to Jerusalem, Jesus did this on the Passover, is kind of absent in the story, and it emerges the sayings of Jesus. What it looks like as a scholar is that someone, somebody, I don't know who, collected the sayings of Jesus as a source. And they either transitioned them from the oral level to a written level, but that source influenced two of our Gospels. And they're, they're going to draw from it. And we, don't, we can't tell, of course, right, if only Luke took from Q, we wouldn't be able to know that. We only know the places where Matthew and Luke use Q. And it's a, it's a powerful, powerful way to kind of understand the origins of the gospel. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot, like I do everyone I interview, in five sentences or less. What would you say would be the best way for us to approach reading the gospels, either with our family or by ourselves in the future, to maybe get a different, more modern look at these wonderful scriptures. And if you take more than five sentences, that's fine. Most interviewees take five paragraphs. Okay, sure. That, yeah, that's a really loaded question and I'm happy to, to take a stab at it. To give you the kind of most appropriate, most helpful thing to do, let, let me say it, it, just a very, I hope, quick story. And uh, I, I, I'll share this. Uh, my graduate advisor, and this is going to be more than five sentences, so I apologize, but my graduate advisor was challenged in one of my courses by a student who questioned that professor's faith. And my professor, I think, was atheist. He, he would say he was. I was never sure he was telling the truth, but he would say he was atheist. And in his response to this question, the student who questioned his faith, he, he looked at him in the eyes and he said, 
without a doubt, the Jesus of history existed. And he said, you want to haggle over the Jesus of faith, but we need to first understand who the Jesus of history is. That was his point. And it really drove it home to me as this young return missionary doing a PhD in, in Bible. He was right. I knew him through Talmadge. I knew him through the Book of Mormon. But I didn't really know if Jesus liked fish or olives or he had a preference for steak. I didn't know who he was. And, and so I kind of began this lifelong quest to understand who Jesus of history is. And so if I could say anything that matters that to today in the podcast, it would be Jesus of history matters. He's a really big deal. I know those are simple ways to say it, but I, I can't say it loud enough. I can't say it strong enough. Jesus of history changes lives. And it informs our Jesus of faith. If you understand that person, his passions, his, his emotions, his, the times he grew upset, what upset him? I know what upsets me, but it's really important to know what upsets Jesus. And things do. Things hurt him. He, he weeps. He, he, he marks as he, he became so emotional they had to protect him and carry him out of the room. And so I would say to a reader, this really matters. This is a big deal. Okay, that was a teaser. I'm not done interviewing you. I have to ask you a follow-up question. Great. That sort of changes the way we've typically read the scriptures and especially the gospels. We read a verse and we say, how can I apply that to my life? What kind of direction will that give me? And you're not saying discard that. Absolutely But you're not. saying... Go okay, deeper. Let's go deeper. Let's see who Jesus was so we be can become closer to him rather than just saying, okay, he was this perfect man who lived and performed the atonement. And also, one more thing, I want to present this to my children in an oral way. Do you think there's value in that? presenting it in the way it was originally presented? I know teenagers, they'll go for a movie any day. I oh. do. I do think there's great value. I, I'm a little hesitant here to, you know, to say this in a, in a way, and I hope I can come across as not critical. Um, we read it in a 17th century translation. Jesus spoke very common language. So find it in a language that's a little less, uh, if you will, old. <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe a modern translation will help that navigate that, uh, that bridge, if you will. I am not saying let's totally throw out what we've done. I just think if we go a little deeper, you're going to find something more compelling, more meaningful to you. And I don't think we want to throw out what we've done. I think we just want to learn more because that's what makes it exciting, alive, vibrant, and makes us come back again and again and again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Tom, for sharing this hey, time thanks, with us. Laura. Thanks. This was great. I had great fun. Here's what's coming up next time on the LDS Perspectives podcast. Do you remember, maybe you're old enough to remember the $6 million man? Sure. Yeah, he'd cost a lot more today, but that's <laughs> all right because the government would pay for it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we had this $6 million man and, and the voice would come on at the beginning of the program and he would say, we can rebuild him. We can make him better than before. And I think that's what I can almost hear God saying. We can sanctify him. You know, we can create we can help him be better than he was before. 
Elias Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and Elias Perspectives and Elias Answers, Inc. may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of Elias Church leaders, policies, or practices.